You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get started with this week's episode, which is a fantastic one, really excited for you guys to hear his story, but want to remind you guys about our promotion with Amazon. Make sure you guys go to our website, hazardground.com, click on the Sponsors tab at the top of the homepage, or scroll down to the bottom and hit the Amazon button. It'll direct you right to Amazon. You can do the same thing on your mobile phone as well, your smartphone. Go to hazardground.com and click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or the Sponsors tab. It'll redirect you right to the app, so all of your information is saved and everything, which is convenient and easy. But anyway, you do all your normal Amazon shopping. We'll get a percentage of what you guys spend, and we'll donate it right back to some of the great charities you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground. Make sure you guys follow us on all the social media sites to keep up with what's going on with the show, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, as well as our YouTube channel at Hazard Ground and Hazard Ground Podcast. Easy to find. Give us a follow and tell a friend. We want to continue to grow this Hazard Ground community. And then finally, keep the ratings and reviews coming. Uh, we love hearing from you guys. If you want to write us personally, you can do so at producer at hazardground.com, and we will return all of those emails. So uh, we love hearing from you guys, as I've said. If you take the time to write us, we're certainly going to take the time to get back to you. One final note, I do want to thank everybody. Um, if, if you haven't heard and you don't follow me on social media, uh, I was laid off this week due to COVID, but I've had a lot of fans of the Hazard Ground reach out and wish me well and uh, continued success. And so that certainly means a lot to me. And it just kind of goes to show you how much of this Hazard Ground podcast has really connected veterans and people all over the United States and all over the world. So I certainly thank everybody who, who took the time out to reach out and wish me well. We're going to be fine. We're going to be okay. We veterans, we service members, we all stick together. So I know you guys all got my back and I got yours. And certainly, again, thank you guys for taking the time to reach out and wish me well. Now that all that's out of the way, let's get on with this week's episode. Joining us this week on the Hazard Ground is a 25-year Army veteran, a retired Sergeant Major who spent time in the 75th Ranger Regiment, including a special mission unit. He had a total of 14 deployments throughout his entire career. He currently works for a company which make drone cameras. He also is a military and technical advisor in the film industry, working on such films as How It Ends and the Netflix original Extraction. He is Craig Chili Palmer joining us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Craig, welcome, brother. Good to talk to you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks for uh, having me on. All right. Well, we have to start with the uh, with the nickname Chili. Everybody calls you Chili. So before we ask you about your military service, how did you get the nickname? It's it's not a great story. It's kind <laughs> of one of those lame stories. But, uh, you know, back in 97, when I was uh, after selection, I was at Bragg going through the training there. A buddy of mine... Uh, Noticed how I had my hair nice and slicked back, and I looked kind of like John Travolta's character on Get Shorty. And uh, being all Guido-esque, he's like, oh, you look like friggin' Chili Palmer, and it just stuck. And I was like, yeah, whatever. And, you know, overall, it's not a bad way to get a nickname, because I have had some friends that were nicknamed like, uh, you know, Welcher and Stinky and stuff like that. <laughs> so it worked out. Yeah, uh, but at least you didn't give yourself your own nickname, which is a which is a major faux pas. It's a cardinal sin. You can never give yourself your own nickname. So, all right, let's start back at the beginning for you. Uh, when and how did you get in the army? I went in in 1989, right out of uh, high school. Uh, just was that kid that always knew that he wanted to be in the, the military, and um, just kind of 
was waiting my time to get through high school to to get in service. You know, you signed up at a time where there wasn't really uh, a lot of combat going on, but uh, that wasn't really the case for you because as soon as you got out of um, basic and everything, you went right into Panama, correct? Yes. Uh, yeah. You know, at that time, it was really, you know, people went in the military to be in the military. And, you know, it was always going to be an experience whether or not it was going to be four years or a retirement. And, you know, mine ended up being a retirement. But, yeah, I went in uh, right after basic AIT, all that that one unit station training, then went to airborne school, then went to the Ranger indoctrination uh, program at that time, which was just three weeks of really weeding people out. I got to battalion December I think it was like the, uh, I think it was December 12th, somewhere in there, um, of 89. And shortly thereafter, my ninth jump was into Panama on December 20th, 1989. Operation Just Cause, you know, we've talked about it a lot on the podcast and had several people uh, who were on that raid. Uh, what do you remember about it? I mean, for, for a kid that's so young um, and really, you know, Maybe in the special operations units there were, but there weren't a lot of experienced combat vets at that time. So do you remember what you were told before going into Panama, like, you know, by some of your senior NCOs and whatnot? Yeah, I remember my uh, platoon sergeant just saying, oh, you won't notice the weight of your ruck, everything like that, because, you know, all the other guys were grenade raiders from 83. So it was like, mm-hmm. you know, that was the last experience. And they're like, you won't remember, you will, you'll do this, whatever. And my, my squad leader was like, hey, don't worry, you know, you'll be good. Just do what you got to do, you know, get to the assembly area and all that stuff. Um, and first thing I remember is of course we jumped at 500 feet. So I get out, we had the dual point, uh, harness for lowering our rucksack, jumped out, didn't even check canopy, went to lower it. Uh, one side went, the other side didn't, I picked it up to, uh, be able to, you know, lift it up the rucksack so I could get the tension off that side so I could release it. And, Bam, I hit. And then I uh, got out of my chute, put my rucksack on. I was like, holy shit, I, <laughs> I, I feel the weight. I don't know what the hell he was talking about. <laughs> That's unreal. Um, first combat experience there, did you get a chance to fire your weapon at all or no? No, and I um, I have a like a nice story I like telling people uh, when I do some of the shooting classes with VTAC and SIG is um, – you know, I was constantly checking my round to make sure it was loaded, loaded, loaded. And, you know, even though you had the forward assist and everything like that, um, first thing, yeah, I, I there was a little bit of a firefight when landed um, off by this truck on the tarmac and stuff, but I wasn't involved in it at all. Didn't see anything else. You know, there was sporadic stuff around. Um, my buddy, I ended up actually finding my roommate underneath his, he was trapped under his canopy and we start running to the assembly area. Um by the time we get going through stuff, we're just like clearing. It was like, yeah, whatever you go in, there was no, no real procedures or tactics, you know, on doing CQB at that time for us in the range regiment, we could, we could do a patrol base in the woods, but not so much a, uh, clearing, uh, but good CQB. And so we were just kind of like, Oh, there's a fridge. Let's shoot in it to see if anybody's hiding, you know, just stupid stuff. And I went to, to pull the trigger and it was like, kick because I kept checking that damn round. It wasn't fully seated. So, you know, boom, right away had a malfunction. So my thing to people is always load the magazine. This We show them a correct way to do it. You know, load the mag. You know that where your top round is when you have your 30 rounds, rounds on the right, you load the magazine, uh, close the bolt, 
pull out the magazine. If the top round's on the left, you know you loaded a round, so you don't have to do the press check. Amazing stuff, man. Um, you get out of Panama. Um, do you kind of get a sense of like thinking at that point in time that was the most or closest to combat you were going to come in your career? Yeah, it was weird because it was like, you know, I knew nothing and I was scared to death. And um, I remember that morning having to choke down my waffles when we were out at uh, 175 before we left because it was a freezing rain and all that. And I was like, man, you know, I knew nothing, didn't know anything. All I did was follow, you know, try to just follow my squad leader, my team leader, everything. So I no idea, no concept. And I always regretted that thinking, man, I hope I get another chance to, to actually be able to do something or think. And, um, yeah, it just, you know, watching everything else go by through the nineties, all that stuff. Um, and then after going to selection 97, being up at Bragg for a few years and then everything happening with nine 11, it's like, Holy cow, here we go. You know, this, this is a game changer. This is something that's changed in the world. And, you know, we're, we're definitely going to be involved. So it was just a matter of, you know, to what extent. And then of course we, we know we rolled in there and did a lot of, a lot of uh, wild, wild west activities. Yeah. Um, without fast forwarding too much, I do want to go back just to your time um, in the 75th Ranger Regiment. And then you went to work as a military free fall instructor, um, which, you know, for the non-military folks, um, I mean, that's the same as halo school, right? Like high altitude, low opening, as far as jumps is concerned. I mean, how did you get that job? Did you want it or how does it all come about? Yeah, so I was uh, at first bat for about two years and actually then tried out for the Regimental Reconnaissance Detachment at the time, uh, which was down at Fort Benning then. And I was like, okay, yeah, let's let's do this. This is like the old LERP teams in Vietnam. So um, I did the tryouts for RRD, made it. Then um, knowing that, you know, MFF was going to be a part of that as our skill set. So when I went to... um, you know, basically the, the recon teams, uh, I got to go to a few different schools, which is awesome. Got static line jam right away, then went right to MFF. And then I did the waterborne infiltration course down at Key West. Um, so what happened was I was trying to go over to, to three, seven, five as a squad leader at that time, Sergeant major Ponder was in charge of the regiment. And he was like, uh, no, you've, you've been in the regiment long enough, five years. You need to go, uh, out Abrams charter and, you know, go to the regular army and do good things out there and then come back. And I was like, screw this. And I had a couple friends that went up to the halo committee already. So I was like, yeah, whatever. I'm going to do something that I want to do. So, uh, basically, yeah, hit, hit my friends up there at the committee. And then I was able to get a, a slot to go up there. And what was funny was it was at, when it was at Bragg in 95, so January 95 moved up to Bragg and then uh, July 95 moved to Yuma, Arizona with part of that move. And growing up in Arizona, it was kind of nice because uh, I was about three and a half hours away from my folks and my son was born in June of 95. So it was wow. uh, pretty neat. And so I was out there for a couple of years before I went to selection and then went back to Bragg in 97. When you go to assessment and selection, um, how much did you know about it ahead of time? And obviously you had some experience in the special operations community in the 75th and everything else. And, um, but did you know what you were getting into at that point? Um, 
you know, as far as selection, I knew it was a big gut check and everything. And I knew what the end state was for where I wanted to be in the unit I wanted to be in. Because uh, once when I was in regiment or in first bat and heard that you could actually try out, I thought it was something that people come and they say, hey, we want you to try out. Um, I was like, well, I've got, always got to give it a shot. And so I knew, you know, consisted of a lot of land nav, a lot of gut check, and it's all on you as an individual. But, you know, that's really all I knew outside of um, going there and knowing a couple things. You, you know, you got to do your PT test and 18 miler. And then from there, it's, you know, kind of the unknown in a way, but knowing that you're doing a lot of land nav and it's big gut check. But it was, uh, I had a, also a levy to Hawaii on my back and there's no way I wanted to go out to the regular army. So, um, yeah, that helped push me along the way when I was kind of dragging on some of those hills. What was the toughest part for you about assessment and selection? Um, I, th- I think initially just, you know, you're so in the regiment, it's, it was kind of, you know, I wouldn't say micromanaged, but you're very strict in your guides, you know, left and right limits. And so you're always given these, you know, your, your orders and your standards, your task condition standards. And, you know, there's a little bit of wiggle room to maneuver in the halo committee. It was, it was nice. Cause I was around all the SF guys, a lot of guys, even from the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also, you know, some of the seal teams. So got to see a little bit more, you know, as far as being an individual and actually, you know, being able to do things when they say, Hey, here's your task. You could accomplish it how you needed to versus somebody saying, this is step one, two, and three for it. Um, so it was going to to selection for me. was just, you know, realizing I'm in that environment of, you know, I'm given what I need to do, what task it is. And I, I need to figure out the best way it works for me. So then once you kind of got into that groove, then it was just, the mindset of just thinking of the end state to me, it was always that end goal, you know, because if you think about, Oh, um, when I finish today, it's not so much today, it's tomorrow and, and the next day that I had to think about. You spent 25 plus years in the special operations community. Assessment and selection has changed a lot. When you know, see what it is now, what's your response to the way it is better, worse, just different. How do you kind of gauge it? Um, I, I think anytime you kind of take away from some of the, uh, you know, standards by means of, to me, it was way back when, where they started like the swim test, but you became like, eh, just kind of a pass or fail. And then you had to learn how to swim by the end of, you know, your, um, basically your training period is after selection. And so to me, it was things like that kind of like, you know, you should know how to swim beforehand. If you're going to do something special, then you shouldn't have to be taught something basic like that. You know, granted, other things are taught starting out like basic anywhere else because they want everybody to be on the same standard, you know, and then moving forward like BRM. You start out with BRM, basic rifle marksmanship, but then, of course, we go to you go to advanced shooting right away. It's not like you're sitting there. Everybody's just doing BRM like you would, uh, you know, basic training and all that. You know, there's a higher level of it but then it morphs right into more of, um, you know, combat shooting. And so that kind of, I think sucks with some of the things when you start taking things out or, you know, we, Oh, we lessen this weight. We lessen that weight. I mean, they were there for a reason. I understand some of that, but then I think in other ways they've gotten better because like Rip used to be just, you know, three weeks of 
just getting your bag smoked and then doing a road march almost every other day, it seemed like. Uh, my son went in and he went into the Ranger Regiment and he went through, you know, RASP, which is now Ranger Assessment Selection Program. So it's eight weeks long. They they do a lot of the same stuff, but then they actually get taught things to integrate when they get to, um, you know, their squads versus just getting their bags smoked and everything else. So some of the aspects, I think, have changed to a lot better stuff. But, um, you know, our roadmark, our roadmark standards, still the same time standards, but how we did it where you had to be an arm's reach away from the guy in front of you to doing a release road march kind of softens it up to me. But uh, I think there's a lot better stuff going on as far as they're learning a little bit more. Well, let's bring it uh, back to 9-11. Where were you? What were you doing? And what do you remember? So that was crazy because uh, I was actually on a plane flying from Raleigh-Durham to Boston to Logan Airport, and we landed – about 10:30 a.m. I think it was in uh, Boston, and we had no idea what the heck was going on. Um, the pilot says we we're getting ready to land. They're like, "If there's anybody uh, in the military, you know, uh, please, you know, raise your hand and stuff." And we're and there was a group of us on there because we were going up to do some vehicle extra, uh, extrication training uh, with the fire department up in Plymouth, Mass. And you know, we're like, "Yeah, whatever." And then we go get ready to land and he's like, you know, please, yeah, let the military, you know, uh, guys get off first, all this stuff. And we're like, what's going on? So we actually landed. Uh, people started getting on their cell phones and then people were saying, you know, the towers fell and all this stuff. And we're like, what the heck is going on? And then doors open on the plane. It was a jet, but it was still a smaller, um, you know, uh, plane itself. And then he starts or everybody gets, he said, let the military get off everything else. So a bunch of us all stand up. There were other folks too, from, you know, the other units and whatnot in there. I mean, people going home on leave. And so the doors open and we're all standing up now and he starts taxiing again. And it's like, we're like, what the heck? Because, you know, that never happens on any given day. Um, Then we get off the plane and the pilot's like, good luck, good luck, good luck, all this stuff. And we're like, you know, he doesn't know who anybody is other than they're in the military, but his his thought is get those people off as fast as they can. So then we start hearing what's going on. They start over the loudspeaker in Logan too, saying, you know, hey, martial law has been declared. You need to leave. You need to leave. Took us like an hour to get our rental car. We finally drove driving south out of Boston and it was near Foxborough. I think it was we finally stopped and uh, actually went up to some TVs and saw what what happened. So um yeah, it's a pretty crazy situation then because, you know, everything changed in a heartbeat. And, of course, the plane took off from Logan Airport that hit, you know, um, one of the towers. So it was very, um, very surreal in a lot of things. And then also families worried because they knew we, we were flying to Boston. Did you know when you started hearing everything, like, we're going to war? You know, we knew that there's going to be um, – there's got to be something – as far as retribution with what went on to the extent of what, what it was, we had no clue. We didn't know, couldn't think, you know, of all the things that would happen, but we knew something was going to happen. Um, so it was really weird being separated from everybody else and being up there in a school or going to do some training and stuff. So, I mean, we were up there in constant communication. They're like, stay there, stay there. And then we finally 
came home and uh, drove all the way back. I mean, it was just insane trying to, to drive through everything. And then uh, once got back, then it's like, you know, you start really being able to be brought in a little bit more since we're away, you know, what's going on and what's being planned and all that stuff. And then of course we know things started in October, you know, with a, you know, direct response. And then from there we, you know, now see where we went. So what happens next for you? I mean, you know, how quickly, um, and, and we know the special ops community obviously was tapped first for this, but how quickly do you have to start mobilizing and, and where and if, and when do you go? Um, based off what it was and how they were doing things, you know, the first time we actually got to go over was uh, that April of uh, of '02. So went to Afghanistan April '02 through uh, July '02, but other guys were there from October on. So it was a constant present through the special ops, you know, and then even, um, you know, a lot of the stuff with like Fifth Group, they were there even uh, during that that October and everything within uh, Afghanistan and started that big push, you know, with the Kurds and everything. So from that, it was just constant presence. It was just rotational. Um, and we were, we were just, you know, biting our tongue waiting to go because it was, you know, everybody wanted to do something, but you have to understand there's also a flow and there's a, you know, a, a little bit more of a strategic look than it is just wanting to get involved. When do you finally get on ground? It was that, uh, early, April of 02. Okay. And so, yeah, we went to Bagram airfield, which at that time, you know, we were still, uh, burning the, uh, the waste from the toilets with diesel fuel and, uh, we were living in tents. And mm -hmm. so it was, uh, you know, pretty, you know, pretty old school yeah. <laughs> environment by, by standards <laughs> of, 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 you know, 2010 and beyond. Um, what's your mission set when you get there? I mean, I, look, I, obviously it's, you know, you're trying to find bad guys and you're trying to get bin Laden at that point in time. Um, you know, thinking that we still have a shot at getting them, you know, now with the hindsight being 2020. Um, but to that end, you know, do you feel like going in your mission set is achievable? Yeah, hundred percent. You know, I mean, you start coordinating with the element that you're going to actually, you know, uh, replace and kind of seeing what they're, they've done, what lessons learned. So then we can, kind of uh pick and choose not pick and choose but kind of you know of course learn from what they did but then also maybe you know continue what progress they had or change course based off you know how this something isn't working out so you know a lot of coordinating uh with the elements you know in country before we did the rip and then from there it's kind of like okay hey what what's kind of here what can we do what are our assets you know who's out there with the intel because a lot of it was humid at the time then you know you had the preds flying and that was the only thing really you know flying because everybody was still worried about the stinger missiles that could have been out there so then it was about linking up with the sister elements like you know we did a patrol with the british S uh, sbs guys you know out in kajaki and um we were there for a couple weeks and driving around and then going to different villages trying to to see based off old, you know, NAIs that were during the Russian time frame, even. So it was, it was just a lot of development. Did you think back to your time in Panama when you get on ground in Afghanistan and sort of compare the two or that doesn't come till later? You know, uh, during the, we didn't do too much, too many direct action 
missions then because it's just the intel and everything was not right, there right. and then the assets. Um, so that first time go in and then seeing a helo get shot at with a dish gun stuff, it was like, oh, shit, yeah, this stuff's real again. Just kind of like with, uh, with Panama. Uh, that was what made it real to me was – you know, the, that little skirmish I talked about on the tarmac that, that I witnessed, but was far enough away that I wasn't involved. And then seeing this stuff happen, it's like, okay, you know, this, this stuff is, is real. And it's, you, you change your mindset a little bit. I mean, you're scared like anything else, even though after all the deployments, you're, you're still afraid, but it's being able to think through that. So it was, I think just being able to adapt to it and understand this, the situation, but know that we had a higher level of training and then over time it became kind of second nature with our training because we were able to really focus it on the battlefield or the threat that was there of the day. Do you remember when you get into your first, you know, legitimate combat sort of, uh, uh, you know, entanglement, if you will? Yeah, that was, um, we got, that was actually during the invasion of, um, of 2003. In Iraq. And, Yes. Okay. So in uh Well, when did you get back from Afghanistan real quick? We got back in July. So it was Okay. Quick you know, three minimal months. Mm-hmm. yeah, minimal time frame and uh yeah, um, no real skirmishes, no nothing for us itself. I mean, it's just just the way it was going. You know, the guys beforehand had a few good things going on, a uh, few engagements, um but things were kind of slowing down just a touch because I think it was harder for them to move as well. Um, But with everything, you know, uh, we got to be a part of the invasion in 03 going in from Saudi Arabia all the way into Tikrit um, during our journey. And along the way, we had a few good skirmishes going. Um, You know, we wake up in March to a bunch of S-60s shooting at, you know, planes, uh, coming in, dropping bombs and everything like that around the airfields. So um, it was pretty, yeah, pretty intense. And then we had a huge battle in two, uh, two April, and uh, we lost Sandy Fernandez that day. Um, and so that was a that was a big engagement that we were surrounded, and then kind of had to make our stand. Uh, we about a hundred dudes tried to surround us, and there was about seventy of us. That's uh, n- not favorable numbers. Nope, but it's also the will and also the, you know, the the firepower that we were able to have. And then we had some great guys from, you know, the the CCT side that the combat controllers that were bringing in aircraft left and right. So um, it was pretty, yeah, pretty intense little day, but it was, you know, a lot of a lot of people doing the right thing at that time. You know, when you talk about losing Andy Fernandez, um what does that do to you? I mean, you know, you've had some combat experience at this point and you've had some, you know, uh, obviously uh, experience in Afghanistan, but uh, does that change your mindset at all? I mean, I think then it's, it's, it's hard, you know, you can't shift and, and dwell on it at that point because we know that we, we still have, you know, things that we need to accomplish. I mean, it's a very, very crappy situation like anything else, even if somebody's injured. Um, and where it really hits home, I think, is when we get back because then, you know, you do the memorial and you see the family. And that's, right. I think, the hardest hardest part with that one. You know, you're, we're talking about deployment number three here. You know, you include Just Cause and then Afghanistan and now Iraq. And you still got 
11 more of these things uh, coming down the pipe. Now, obviously, you don't know that at the time, but um, are you at a point in your career, you know, where do you even realize the toll that, you know, this is starting to take on you or is it not taking a toll just because, you know, you're young and full of piss and vinegar, as you said before? Oh, well, at that point, you know, I was uh, in 03, I was 33 then. And so, I mean, I think that the toll, we 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 never knew what kind of toll it was going to take on us because, you right. know, we were gone for three, home for six months, gone for three, home for six and stuff. And so it's, I think the hardest part is the the family, but because that, you know, there's so much different stress when you get ready to leave. And then when you come home, it's like reintegration again. And we could have been on doing a hit and then 48 hours later be walking into our living room. So there was no downtime, no dwell time, no kind of, um, you know, counseling in a way um, as far as, and also looking at indicators of guys saying, Hey, he just needs a break, you know, or this guy is, you know, he's, he's wore out. Let's give him a break. Cause if you asked for it, everybody, Oh, he's a, he's a wimp. He can't do it. You know? Yeah. He needs to go, go rest. Yeah. Ha ha ha. So there was, you know, the, the level of, you know, just the, the machoism of, of doing it all. So I think a lot of guys started seeing it later and indicators started coming out and then we developed the plan for it as far as counseling and everything else. And the army, the military as a whole has done a whole lot better job with it. But of course, as we know now, you know, there's still so many uh, veteran suicides, just like, you know, a couple weeks ago, one of the SF guys that just moved up to DC to, to do a job that he was wanting and all this. And, you know, he, he committed suicide. So it's, yeah. you, it's so hard and it's, you know, people can hide it. I think that's the other side. All right. So you get back from the invasion of Iraq, uh, you know, again, we keep, we'd be here for hours if we went through all of the next 11 deployments, but kind of, you know, some of the highlights of what's next for you. I think it was just, you know, it was the constant going back, um, to Iraq. I mean, I spent a lot of time in Baghdad, then in and around, um, yeah. you know, all around Iraq really, but primarily my time was housed in, uh, Baghdad. Um, I mean, I looked forward to, to the deployments. Um, it was, to me, it was still that, I don't know, just, you know, it's what I wanted to do. Um, wanted to be there. Uh, but you, again, you don't know sometimes that this takes a toll on you. Um, I think that just the deployments up through, I mean, well, it's hard to say what, what has been like the best or what has been like the, you know, something that was great or anything without really getting too detailed into some of the stuff that could be still classified, but it was, uh, I mean, we did a lot of good things and there was a lot of good times. Granted, there were some, you know, bad days in there that, um, you wish never happened. And I think for me, when you're not there and something happens, that's the one thing that I think about is I should have been there. Or I, mm-hmm. what, you know, I could have changed it. We all know the should have, would have, could have, but you know, it could have been, you know, you that was actually injured or killed if you were there and stuff. So it's, um, I think just going back and forth to Iraq, it was, you know, it was the wild west and we were just getting after it and we we're, you know, doing a lot of good things and, and getting a lot of high value targets as well. Were you there in 05 to 06 in Baghdad? Yes. I was at RPC. Were you there? Um, I was primarily there sitting in the green zone down at okay. the, that row of houses. 
Yep. Gotcha. Okay. I mean, I, I was, I was with fifth and 10th group while I was there, um, you know, for the course of, uh, you know, almost 15 months that we were there, but, um, you know, it's it, at that time, you know, you talk about, uh, you know, high value targets and, and, you know, all that violence led up to the surge in 07. So that was sort of the, the height of uh, the, some of the most difficult times in Iraq through Fallujah, Ramadi, Sadr City and all that. Um, and, and, you know, I don't know about you. Um, I, I often wondered if even though things were going well from a military and tactical standpoint, you know, there's always that sort of conversion of strategic goals and operational and tactical goals and where do they intersect and do they ever end up on the same page? You know, I mean, this is theory stuff for, for the military people. This is what you discuss in war college, right? Like this is the strategic theory that you have to figure out the, de- the, the delta between can you be operationally and tactfully successful and still fail strategically? And the answer is yes, you can. I mean, you, you could argue that was mm-hmm. Vietnam. You could argue that was the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. I mean, there were very few engagements that you could point out in either Iraq or Afghanistan. We got our ass kicked and we were totally overmatched and everything. Like that just, it didn't happen all that often. So to that right. end, we were more successful operationally and tactically than maybe any other war in history. But to that end, there's a lot of people who would probably justly argue we've lost this thing strategically. Yeah, no, I agree. And it's a tough one because it's then what happens as we saw, you know, saw a lot of political nature comes into play. Yes. And then, you know, the leaders that are in charge then in that country, whether it be Iran or, I mean, uh, I'm sorry, Iraq or Afghanistan, you know, they're corrupt to begin with, but they're the, the least corrupt that support some of the U.S. policies. So seeing stuff like that is just like, you know, painful and that's where I think some of that strategic level we fail because then we start trying to, you know, give this back over to folks that we know are just going to, you know, run this to the ground. And then we're going to have to come back in and, and assist a new regime, you know, down the road. You know, and and I never look, there's nothing wrong with bringing bad guys to justice. Right. Like from simplistically bad guy, take him out. Like that was the thing with Soleimani <laughs> and and. And, and Baghdadi that, you know, happened recently, like with Soleimani, bad guy, take him out. The, the, the equation is simple and it shouldn't be anything more than that. Like if your resume says terrorist on it, we go get you. Like that's, you know, that's easy. But again, I, I wonder if, because I wondered this often, if, if it was all going to be for naught, you know, like in, in the big picture. And I don't know if you're like one of these sort of philosophical, critical thinkers like I am, but I can remember having conversations with people in Iraq saying, you know, we go out there and we do what we do every day and, and, and we fight our asses off and, we, and we, we, we get the mission done, but I just don't know if it's actually accomplishing anything. Yeah, there was, a, you know, so, some of the stuff like that. It's like, really, what, we're, what are we doing here? What We're going after this. And then other times where, you know, we had some things lined up, ready to go, going in to, to get Sauter himself mm-hmm. and we get called off by somebody from outside the the country of Iraq, somewhere in the U.S. telling us, no, you have to let them be. So it's what deals were made? What, you know, what is going on here? Because you don't, this is a bad guy, but yet well, now we can't go take him out when we know that he's doing things to injure, to maim, to, to try and kill U.S. soldiers. So yeah, that stuff is just kind of painful. When do you get to a point, or do you get to a point during these 14 deployments? I know you said you look forward to them, but was there ever a point where you sort of looked at them and went, man, you know, it's time for me to go home? Yeah, I mean, I think 
you know, uh, basically a hundred day deployment was, was perfect time frame because, you know, being busy and, uh, being operational busy, you know, 75 to 80% of that time, that was perfect because you didn't get it, start getting into that really, um, not a depression in a way, but just, you know, burned out. I mean, especially with everything going on. So that was perfect. And then when things started getting a little bit longer, it was like, holy cow, you know, yeah, I'm ready to go home. And then all of a sudden, not, but I still got to be here a, a good bit longer. So there were, you know, you always look forward to going home when, when, and that's what the mission was. And that's why I think, you know, the, you kind of look at the end state when you start the deployment, your end state is to finish the deployment. But then when you start and you finish it and you're on your way home, now the mission is to get home. So, um, yeah, I think it's about shifting your mind. Um, and I take it back to when I was in RIP, my, I was there over Thanksgiving. So we had a four day weekend and it's like, what are you going to do? I mean, go, go sit in the, the PX and just, you know, people watch because back then there wasn't much to do. And, um, my parents asked, Hey, do you want to, you know, we'll fly you home and everything like that. And I'm like, no, no, I, I don't want to go home. I said, I'm in the mindset with this and I want to get it done. I don't want to break that because back then I understood the deal. If I went home now, I'm, you know, my mind is geared towards this, but it's, I still have to go back and then finish that, that mission essentially. So, um, that's what I look at is just standing that mindset to the end of the mission and then understanding when that mission changes to the next phase. How do you know that it's time to hang it up? That was a decision with me and my family, with my wife and stuff. And it just, I think it just became that time. I mean, looking at it, it was like, yeah, this is, this is the time because at 20 years or at that 19 ish, I was, contemplating things, looking at it, and then like trying to see what's available on the outside with jobs and stuff. But then it just didn't seem right to step away. And, but then as we got close to that, that 25 year, you know, so that 24 year mark, and then whether or not I put in my retirement paperwork, you know, nine months out to a year out. And then it's like, yeah, I, I think I need to do it. And it's just something that, I don't know, it's so hard because you can't, just say, yeah, I'm going to do this. It's that feeling. And then understanding that I think, I think it needs to change for me based off my next mission. And really, and to me, that was doing what's best for my family. My son was graduating high school at the time. So it was perfect in that manner, nothing holding us uh, to anything. And it just seemed like the, the job opportunities then, you know, lined up after that because I had no idea what I was going to do when I got out or retired, but it's like another friend of mine always told me too. He said, Hey, it will work itself out. He retired a year before Tyson Nick. And unfortunately he was killed over in, uh, near Jalalabad about 170, 180 days out from his retirement. And, but he said, Hey, it'll work itself out. You know, you'll find a job that it will happen. And so I had that kind of faith when I put my paperwork in and my wife and I were both nervous, but it's like, well, you know, we had the family and then we'll hold on to that and then things will sort itself out and they do. So it was, uh, I think just a realization of, Hey, I, it, it's time for me to move on. Did you ever sort of get an ultimatum from your wife about deployments and Hey, it's, you know, did she ever pressure you or is she, you know, and again, not that I, I I'm trying to imply that, 
you know, she's wrong for doing it. A lot of, you know, military wives feel that way. Listen, you know, we're in this thing together. We're having a family and it's hard to have a family if you're not here, you know, if you're deployed all the time. I mean, was there any concern about your safety? What kind of conversations were those like? Yeah, it was different from, from my wife because it was both our uh, second marriages. And mm-hmm. so the, for the first, from 02, I, I got divorced in 02 before, um, you know, actually all my stuff was filed before 9-11. So uh, it was easy for me to leave, even though I just had my son. And he was um, basically, you know, when I first deployed, he, he was still six. And so for me, just being myself and then knowing my son still was going to be taken care of, it was, it was easy for me to go and, and do what I need to do. But then with my wife, it was kind of the, the big shock. We're dating and then boom, I'm like, yeah, well, I'm, I got to deploy in all this. So she's been 100% supportive behind everything. And, you know, she's dealt with a lot of learning along the way as I have, because all of a sudden now I'm used to coming home to nothing. And when I say nothing, it's easy to come home back to your own house and then just see your son and all this stuff. But, you know, coming back and reintegrating with her from a dating standpoint and then to everything, us getting engaged and so on and getting married. So she was always supportive and, um, you know, yeah, she never pressured me in any way of, no, you can't do this. No, not this or anything like that. So, which has been great because, um, I think she's helped me realize a lot of things as well. And she suffered for some of those little things like, you know, like I say, the 48 hours in between doing a hit and coming home and all of a sudden, and then trying to basically, you know, it's a new relationship again. And so we both dealt with, uh, a lot of adversity with some of that stuff. But then again, like I say, who she is and how strong she is and, and, you know, how supportive I think made it a lot easier for me to, to realize, you know, that, Hey, my family's always going to be there. All right. So uh, you hang it up 25 years. How uh, do you end up becoming a military and tactical advisor for movies? So I, I retired and ended up working for a company called Prox Dynamics, which is Norwegian, and it was with a small um, drone. And we were purchased by FLIR. So, uh, of course, with all that, you know, going to the SHOT Show and everything and then having a lot of friends within the industry that I worked with retired and they're out there, you know, like Brad Thomas and stuff. And then uh, Chris Van Zandt out at Tier Tactical. And so we were at the SHOT Show and... A uh, friend of a friend introduced me to a guy named Patrick Newell, who was a producer, and we developed a friendship. And then he just been wanting to try and get me involved, and he got me involved in How It Ends, and then uh, this latest one, Extraction. So, yeah, it was just a chance meeting. And uh, I mean, Patrick is a good friend of mine, and what I like is, you know, he, he's a true American. He's, you know, just a guy that. Um, supports the military, supports everything, and kind of breaks that, I think, that Hollywood mode as far as being, you know, certain stereotypical individuals. And he is just a, just an all-around good guy, and it's it's a great friendship. And so that's, that's how I got involved. Pretty impressive. Um, and again, the, you know, the movie How It Ends with Forrest Whitaker, and um, this year uh, Netflix's Extraction with, with, with Chris Hemsworth, which uh, – Makes a lot of women happy. Uh, my wife loves him. So uh, he, 
she, she's like you know the one on the list. You know, if you ever get that hall pass, I think I think he he's at the top of her list. So she's going to be extremely jealous when she hears this. Uh, but that said, what's <laughs> it, what's it like working with a star like Chris? Though I mean, is he a down to earth guy? Um, he he truly is. Actually, he's he was a nice guy. He was. Um, I think, yeah, it was just so easy because here it was here's a guy right that's doing this, uh, doing the the filming and everything like that. He's and he's, you know, we're in Thailand and it's, you know, like a hundred degrees, but he's not running back and forth to the trailer doing anything. He's sitting there in the shade and, you know, around us all talking. He's, he's not sitting there like in role, you know, um, the whole time when he's done shooting a scene, he, he, he'll talk to you and ask you questions too. And also like, Hey, how did that look? And stuff like that when it became the, the gunplay and things like that. So he, wanted to get things right. But then also he's eating his lunch out there as well on set. You know, he's the director, Sam Hargrave coming up. Hey, you know, do you care if we shoot it again? It looked good, but we want to do that. Yeah. Okay. No problem. And it was, it was pretty neat because, you know, just, just a down to earth guy and just uh, very talented and, and uh, a nice human being. To that end, you know, after you get a chance to work on, you know, some of these movies with, with you know Hollywood folks who try to simulate battle or simulate combat, whether it's you know actual military movie or some sort of other uh, you know it, you know combat like engagement, do you ever find yourself watching some of these movies now and grading the relevance to actual combat? I mean, is that one of the things you hope for as an advisor to try to recreate as much as actual combat as possible? I think yeah. I mean, trying to get to the most realism is key, but. Um... I also had a lot of good friends that I met on, on the set of extraction is, uh, that it was pretty cool because there was a lot of mentorship going on with things and understanding the Hollywood side of it with trying to depict this on film, you know? So it was, it was cool because it was, you know, you're so critical about certain things, but you have to understand, of course, we all know that there's the director's vision, how it looks with the camera. Can everybody be in the scene and stuff like that? So, but what was cool was um, the group with, with Sam Hargrave, Daniel Stevens, and everybody that were putting all the stunts together as well. You know, it was, they wanted realism. And I worked a lot with the stunt guys because of, you know, how they kind of, they do all the prep work of the, the fight scenes and everything else going on. And then uh, shoot the, uh, the previs so that then the actors can see what they're, they're going to be doing as well, just in kind of that, real time on the set with everything, all the props there. And then of course they're the stunt doubles or they're the bad guys fighting and everything else. So it was pretty neat because they were, they were all great guys. I can't say anything negative about any of the folks I work with and they, you know, wanted it to be real and ask questions or said, you know, Hey, what about this or what about that? And being involved with them and then doing some of the stuff as far as also with like, um, Randeep's character with uh, getting him a lot more comfortable with the gunplay and everything. It was, um, it was all, it was good because I think they tried to put a lot of realism to it and a lot of, you know, kind of, uh, I mean, you can never put the smell on there of, of a battlefield essentially. Right, sure. to, but I think some of the, the things with an engagement or just within a firefight and what was going on, uh, definitely within that bridge sequence. Do you find that, uh, I mean, we always talk about it, right? Like, we always ask about each other's mental health and what we went through and everything else. But 
Do you ever find, do you find that some of these people that you work with in recreating this stuff ever stop and ask you about your experience? Um, I, I did get that chance with, uh, especially my buddy Patrick. Um, and then also with Sam, Sam was, I mean, such a great guy and an easy guy to work with, with and, um, for that. It was great because then he'd come up and say, Hey, well, what about this? You know, um, like we're moving to the helo and I was ducking down a little bit and stuff like that, even though, and he's like, Oh, what about everybody else? You know, what, what do you think with this? And it's like, yeah, you know, let's do this. Or they said, I'm like, well, they're like, Hey, we've got to now shoot from these guys getting off the bridge into the helo. How would we do that? And I said, well, where are you going to be sitting? You know, the cameras, what do you want to do? And you know, how do we make this happen? But then it's also asking, you know, some of the stuff of, you know, Hey, what's, what was your experience you know, and you're sitting there just downtime and everything and chatting with folks, people are interested. And so then the fact that they ask about, you know, how things were for you, what you experienced, then they try to understand that when you're telling them, you know, Hey, this is how I would do this. So it, it was pretty neat because it was a two way street with everything that was going on with the information flow. I thought, do you want to do more movies? I do. I hope, um, I get that opportunity. I know uh, everything's kind of slowed down right now with the pandemic, but um, my buddy Patrick is constantly busy with things. And um, yeah, just we're just waiting to see how things kind of ride out and hopefully some some projects come to light that I can be involved in with uh, with Patrick. You spent 25 years in the military and we are a much different force now than when you signed up again. I, I, I don't want to use better or worse, but we're certainly different. Uh, do you have a, a feeling or an opinion on the differences in, in where we're headed and what the force may look like in another 10, 15, 25 years? Yeah, I think we've gone through a lot of ups and downs, even within this 25 years. We all know presidencies, you know, depict budgets and everything else, which, of course, morale and everything else that goes on within the, the services. But I think we went from, you know, just a training peacetime garrison to a wartime element but then we've gone to a semi garrison wartime environment and i think we're kind of back to being a little bit more in that garrison environment um and i think it's kind of sad because what happens is there's still you know guys going on deployment so many things the roe has changed so much you know the commanders have their roe but then everybody on down keeps adding to it so these guys are so limited in what they can do and now it's all you know a lot of political games so I think the military as a whole has advanced tremendously with technology and there's a lot more capabilities they have, but I think we're still kind of driven with this garrison piece, even though we're still at war. And I think we just need to, to still focus on the fact that, you know, we are a country at war for our survival. You know, this isn't just something that, Oh yeah, Afghanistan, that's over there. You know, no, it's not just over there. It's, it's over there but it's really next door to us right here because if it wasn't there, it could be right here at our doorstep, let alone everything else that, you know, the country is going through right now. Yeah. And I wonder, do we have a leadership problem? I mean, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that go on and a lot of changes. And look, I'm fairly progressive from the most part in the sense that I just feel things move forward, right? Like the train leaves the station. You can either be on or you could be on the platform, but who knows when the next one's coming through, right? So to that end, you know, I'm not necessarily 
the one in charge of making the decisions. But when decisions get made by commands, uh, for example, they're removing DA photographs now from promotion packets and boards and everything else. And everybody has an opinion on that. Now, the bottom line is, is that I think it's leaders that take you through any of these, you know, force wide decisions that are made. Uh, and I wonder, do we are we putting enough good leaders in positions to succeed in the military these days? You know, it's, it's always going to be, I think a question for some on that. And it's, even you, the military, first of all, is a different animal than being a regular U S citizen. Right. And we're almost putting all the stuff, you know, all these politically correct stuff in the military. And that is what's going to ruin it. Like taking the DA photo out. Why are they doing that? Well, they don't want to see that fat guy or that fat woman, you know, in that photo and then judge them off of that, even though their height, weight and everything is there, but they don't want to see all this stuff because then they figure that's, that's going to influence people. Well, you know, being in shape or not being in shape and how you look in the uniform is how you then represent that branch of service. So why not be able to see it? Um, so I think we're taking too much political you know, correctness and putting it in there. And, um, you know, I think there's good leaders out there, but I think there's some, some poor leaders and poor decisions and some, some weak minded, you know, decisions because they're all worried about that next level and whether it be a non-commissioned officer or an officer. I mean, there's, I think we just have to be the military and understand you give up certain rights when you join, you know, because you're going to do a mission Mm. that is specific to the survivability of this country. We, we protect democracy. We don't practice it in the military. There's a, Correct. a fine line there and a difference. And oh, by the way, you know, just a, a quick thought on the, on the DA photograph thing. You know, one of the things that the Secretary of Defense wrote in the memorandum was to remove racial bias as part of it. And my thought was, um, you know, it might just be easier to remove the racist than the photograph. Like that serves the organization <laughs> better long term is to not put somebody on a board who has racial bias. Find that person, get rid of them, and then the photograph isn't the issue. Like, it, it almost right. seems like you're going around the block to get next door. We'd like to remove racial bias. Well, that's only on the individual who has the racial bias. Like, I mean, it's it, it's laughable that that was some of the logic behind the whole thing. Like, if you have a racist in your ranks, get rid of them. The photograph has nothing to do with it. I agree. There's no place in... The U.S. military, the U.S., you know, country, anything for people being, you know, racist. And the fact that it's almost like a cover up and it's to to say we're doing something versus acting on it and and finding out those individuals that are, you know, just knuckleheads and and getting rid of them. I mean, yeah, you solve the problem that way. You just prolong it if you just, you know, kind of push other means in there to to delay it, essentially. All right. Some final thoughts here for you. Uh. You like shooting, obviously. Uh, and if anybody's been to your Instagram page, there, there's there's a lot of guns. Um, and, and I don't say that in a bad way. I just mean, you know, this is still a passion of yours. Uh, is this sort of a way for you to stay connected um, to the service and things of that nature? I mean, what's, what's the passion behind it? Um, I've always loved, you know, shooting as a whole growing up. Um, and then the military took me to a whole nother level, especially with the jobs that I was in. So it's fun. It's to me, it's, it's still something out there that's fun. I can relax with it. Just like kind of working out going shooting is, is fun. And it's a stress relief, you know, it's just something to do, but yet 
I, I like also instructing still, especially with Viking tactics and then doing stuff with SIG as well, because, you know, you can give back. Yeah. So it is a way of staying connected. I, I've, I've actually, with my son being in the service, um, SIG allowed me to do a, a nice week long class down at his unit. Oh, wow. Um, a couple of years ago. So it's great because you can pass something on and just like with law enforcement and then also private civilians, you know, there's something, if you can teach them one thing that, that can make them a better shooter or allow them to survive in the situation that they're in, then you're successful. So it, it is neat to be able to get people to understand. Of course, I don't, a lot of the guys are already, you know, shooters in general or have a decent firearms background when they're doing some of these courses and so with that, they already understand safety. They respect the firearm and they want to learn and make themselves better. And um, I think just being able to pass some of that knowledge on and make them a little bit better and maybe accomplish their job, you know, a little bit safer um, is where I look at it. No reservations about your son going in the military, given the climate of the world? Um, well, he's been in, I think it's now it's five years. And um it was the right decision for him. He went to college and uh, he basically just went to an apartment for a year. You know, it wasn't that he was bad. He just the structure wasn't there. He didn't go to school. And, you know, it is what it is. So uh, it was it was good for him. The right decision. He wanted to do it. But then also, um, I believe that he needed to do it after <laughs> his, his piece <laughs> in college. So I'm just I'm happy that he's happy. He's, uh, you know, already graduated Ranger School. It's been two years ago. Um, so, I mean, he's, he's having a good career so far and he's doing well and he's progressing in the ranks. So I'm just happy that he's happy doing what he wants to do. You look back on your 25 years of service. How do you characterize it? Um, I look at it as a, a lot of growing up and, a, and a lot of good friendships. Um, you know, you can look at over time and especially just see, kind of how you grow up and when, and I look at things like if I was to do something um, at a certain period, like especially when it came to really being involved in the uh, combat roles, you know, I was glad I was where I was at that time in my life for a lot of those lessons learned. And then, I mean, you know, lifelong friends uh, from that whole situation, whether it be guys that I just trained with all the time or guys that I served in combat. Would you change anything? Can always change something. I always wish I went, you know, to, to uh, through selection earlier, but I know that it was the right time for me. My son was a couple years old then and all this, and I had a lot of growing up. I was uh, 26 when I went through selection. So to me, it was looking at my own maturity and understanding it and seeing that. But yet, yeah, I wish I was there earlier. Um, other things deployment wise, just wish I was on this deployment or that again, like we mentioned a little bit ago with, you know, shoulda, woulda, coulda, you know, just, it's like, you never want to not be with your buddies, especially when you hear about something when you're not there. Is there any sort of lingering, I don't want to say pain, but you know, anything bad that stays with you, you know, from whether it's a, a fallen brother or, or something like that, like what kind of still, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, keeps you up at night. It's that thinking that or wishing I was there when some of the stuff happened to some of the folks. Um, when like Steve Langmack was killed, Mike McNulty, 
um, Bob Horgan, you know, I wish I was there. And um, there's only so much that I could do. But those are the things that I think would, you know, kind of that I dwell on sometimes. Is it something that, you know, uh, you're still having trouble reconciling or are you at a, just at a place with peace with it? I mean, I'm at a place with, you know, with peace in that manner, but it's just, you you always think, hey, could I have changed something? Could I have done something better? Or could I have been there and changed the outcome? So, um, but, you know, I'm at peace with where I'm at. Well, Charlie, listen, it's an amazing career, um, a journey that, you know, obviously still continuing with all the work that you're still doing, but you know, uh, it's, it's always great to talk to somebody who has this much experience and has done this much because, um, you know, all that stuff compounds each other, right? Like 25 years, even though it goes by fairly quick when you go through it for the most part, but all that experience compounds and it just, uh, it gives you a vantage point that not many others have. And so for that, certainly I, I thank you for, for being so honest and being willing to share everything with us. Well, thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it. And, uh, it was great to Great being able to talk about it. All right. Make sure you guys check out uh, Chili Palmer Shooting on Instagram. Uh, some great videos there and uh, a lot of fun stuff. And certainly if you're a, you're a fan of shooting and, and things of that nature, you want to follow him. And uh, listen, brother, it's, again, great to get a chance to know you. Uh, we've had some of your fellow friends. You mentioned Brad Thomas, Chris Van Zandt, uh, former guests on the podcast. So uh, it's always great to kind of continue that sort of community of you guys together here through the Hazard Ground. But, again, thanks for your time. And certainly thank you for being part of the Hazard Ground, man. Thanks again, Mark. Really appreciate it. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.